What do we know about the the nature of man? Simple, simple, fallen, right? Born with it. What was that? Born with it. We were born with it, right? It is something that is innate. We inherited it from. That's going to be important as we look to soteriology and understanding that we are born with that innate propensity for sin. We have a, a nature within ourselves that is fallen and not in line with, with God and his holiness. And this morning we're going to dip into soteriology, which is the study of salvation. So should be a good time. We're going to be looking at the, the Old Testament, how that deals with the sacrificial system and the, the covering of sin. But before we do that, we want to do a little bit of review. So to understand that our soteriology is only as good as our martiology. And as we just talked about, martiology is a study of sin. So if we have a misunderstanding of sin, then we don't have a true understanding of what it means to be saved from that sin. Um, I have this conversation often with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's actually been longer than I would hope since I've had a conversation like this with a Jehovah's Witness where we talk about the doctrine of hell because they deny that there is a, a doctrine of hell. And in diminishing the punishment for our sin, what they're really doing is diminishing the the salvation that we find in Christ or diminishing the character of, of Jesus and the, the propitiation of our sin. So if we're not that bad and we don't deserve an eternal conscious punishment <coughs> in hell, then uh, there's not that big of a payment that is required to save us from that punishment. If all we are looking forward to in eternity is annihilationism, just to cease to exist, to go to the grave, then really the, the, the payment that's required to remedy that doesn't have to be as significant as it would be to remedy an eternity in hell. Everything good? All right. That's um, <laughs> I thought it was good. They're walking. I'm playing. All right. If we are deficient in our understanding of the nature of sin, then we'll be deficient in our understanding of the nature of salvation. Again, the two are closely related. So when you say the our soteriology is dependent on our understanding of that that word. Uh, eternal conscious punishment for sin while the sin is on us, the reason for the eternal punishment is because of the holiness of God. Yes. Right? Yep. And that's that's where I think seemingly 99% of cults and heretical teachings come from is misunderstanding of the holiness of God. Yeah, they, they bring God down. So if we have a misunderstanding of who God is and His absolute set-apart holiness, His transcendence, then it doesn't make sense. It doesn't equate that the punishment would be that great. So when God is down here, then our punishment can be down here. But God is beyond the roof. He is transcendent. And so it makes sense that our punishment would be equal because we have sinned against uh, eternal God, so we deserve an eternal punishment. 
All right. Anthony Hopema says, original sin includes both guilt and pollution. The original guilt, by original guilt, we <coughs> deserve condemnation because Adam, our head and representative, broke God's law. We can define original pollution as a corruption of our nature that is the result of sin and produces sin. So, in speaking of guilt, we're not talking about a, a feeling that we have, that we are guilty for something we do, but a position that we hold, that we, as sinners, deserve condemnation. We are guilty in position, just as a criminal is guilty in their position. And oftentimes I think we can, um, again, bring that down to merely a feeling to say that um, God saves us from a guilty feeling. No, he saves us from that position of guilt, and he transfers us into the kingdom of life in soteriology, in our salvation. Philip Hughes <coughs> says of original sin that it tells us that there is an inner root of sinfulness which corrupts man's true nature and from which his sinful deed springs. Like a deadly poison, sin has penetrated to and infected the very center of man's being. Hence his need for the total experience of rebirth by which the restoration of his true manhood is affected. So the last couple of weeks we've talked about the the utter depravity of man, which again is where cardiology and uh, anthropology kind of meet, that we are so depraved innately from our beings. We don't have the choice to choose God. We don't have the ability to be neutral. We are not born neutral. We are born enemies of God and opposition to God. And so we have to have that understanding that at our, our very depths, at our core, we are sinful. And so we need to uh, be completely reborn, completely regenerated, not just molded and shaped differently. But it's a complete restoration, not restoration, um, transformation. transformation. There you go. All right, different viewpoints on this. Uh, historical viewpoints have kind of grown and developed and we pretty much all fall into one of these categories today. So Pelagianism says that humans are born into a state of innocence, again, kind of a, a neutral state, and can obey God. And Adam only gives us a bad example, rather than him giving us original sin like we went through and talked about in Romans 5, that we inherit that nature from Adam. They say, well, he's a bad example. We don't want to follow him. But there's this ability to choose God. That's what Pelagianism teaches. Semi-Pelagianism says that humans are born slanted towards sin, but they can cooperate with God. So again, Adam's sin is not imputed. It's just a bad example. And even though we all tend towards that example, we still have the ability within ourselves to choose God, that we are neutral, so to speak. And then Calvinism, which didn't originate with Calvin, but that's the term that we're stuck with, says that humans are born completely depraved, enemies of God, and legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects. And there are a lot more other things that get piled on top of Calvinism that people don't like to embrace. But speaking of the the nature of, of man, our anthropology, and how it relates to sin, those are the three categories that it breaks down into, and how effective we are by our relationship with that. 
Any thoughts or questions on that slide? It's amazing how these uh, paganism and uh, semi is so dominant in our society today. I mean, it's just like rampant. Uh, people like to put a slam on it. Oh, we're good. You know, okay. we can make our own decisions and choices, and they're going to be morally good, and we can do this and that. It's more of a works type deal. Uh, but that's, of course, been around quite some time. Yeah, or two along with communism. But, I don't think capitalism is I don't like the word capitalism just for that term because so many people dislike the term capitalism and what it stands for or what they think it stands for. But uh, obviously we are great and we have there's nothing about what we can do without God involved. Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons for the popularity of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. I think you hit on one that we, especially in America, we like that feeling, that idea of autonomy, that we get to decide, we get to choose. Um, nobody tells me what I have to do or, you know, I'm not predisposed to one thing or another. We want to um, equality, right? And, and equity is a big term of decade. Yeah. So these are all that idea. these are all Christian views of original sin, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And uh, another, I think, place that this this idea is birthed out of is wanting to somehow protect God, thinking that if we are given this nature by through Adam, but by God ultimately, that that somehow makes God culpable, and so with that incorrect understanding, people, I think, have kind of developed these other understandings that we are actually born in a, a neutral state, and that makes us fully culpable. Whereas with, with Calvinism, that doesn't remove any culpability. Just because we are born with this nature, we still have this desire in and of ourselves. Remember that Adam was a representative head, fairly given to us by the, the perfect God who chose for us the the most adequate representative that he could. And so, in seeing that Adam, our representative, fell, I think we can correctly say that we all would have fallen if we were in that same situation. So it's not unjust somehow for us to be given a, a representative head who represents us and transfers to us uh, same guilt and culpability for sin. Do people adhere to those two possibly because they have a hard time <laughs> saying that children are born into sin? Like, are, do people have a hard time with kids from the beginning being born into sin? Yeah, and I think we're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks and the whole age of accountability because there are a couple of different pathways that you could take with the age of accountability. You could say that um, Adam's guilt, Adam's sin, wasn't transferred to children, and so therefore they are um, not culpable for their sin. If they die in infancy, then they go to heaven, which you have to kind of read over Romans 8 to have that view. Or it can say that God somehow has a, a special grace, an extra grace for those children, even though they are guilty from the, the moment of conception. Somebody said that um, the first time uh, a, a baby draws his first breath, he is sinning because he is, in, he is failing to give full and utter worship to God, to, 
just set him apart as completely holy in his heart, which we're called to do. That's a first commandment, right? That God would be above everything else. And so in failing to do that, uh, the infant sins in his very first moment, which is a statement I haven't fully thought over. But um, infants inherit that guilt from Adam. And so, yeah, I think perhaps that's a way for people to explain that way that he those infants didn't inherit that guilt, but I think biblically they did. Jerry? But again, our nature makes it impossible for us very created. Uh, creature nature makes it impossible for us to comprehend God, and so we really cannot even it's a struggle to even think of holiness. We just can't. That's so beyond us. It's very difficult. Which makes us all prone to not think sin so bad. Yeah. We just can't see holiness. We don't comprehend that. It's so utterly outside of our realm. I mean, we yeah. Most complex science is easier than to consider this. It's so obvious. Which is exactly why we're dependent on God's revelation. Uh, we've talked before about epistemology, how we know what we know, how, how we make sense of the world, how we make sense of thoughts and communication. The only way that we can know anything is to either have been there ourselves or to have it revealed to us by somebody who was. And so God, being eternal in nature, has revealed to us um, what happened in the beginning. He's revealed to us his own character and our character in light of that. And so without that revelation, we would have no understanding. Even the revelation that we have is limited by our fallen nature. And in that fallen nature, we're completely unable to understand the process foolishness of those who are perishing. And so we have to be, again, regenerated. We have to be given new birth, new life, because we are so deeply affected to our core by our sin. And even after rebirth, we're still limited because we're still not God, which is good. Other thoughts? All righty. The key word is imputation. We talked about that a little bit the last couple of weeks. Remind me what imputation means. Imputed righteousness from, from Christ, where God sees us after we've received salvation. And God, when he sees us, sees the righteousness of Christ because of what Christ did for us on the cross. All right. So it's imputed or accounted to us. It's credited to our account, right? Yep. And we talked about how that's how, that's what we most often want to focus on is the imputed righteousness. But we also have to focus on that imputed sin, that Adam's mm -hmm. sin was imputed to our account. It was credited to our account. And that's, first of all, why we were so depraved, where we were so sinful, even to the core, in every respect, not just physically, but mentally in our emotions, in our ability for salvation, our ability to choose God. We are not neutral, yet we are enemies of God. And then we must have that imputed righteousness if we hope to be regenerated, if we hope to achieve this new birth. Bad news before the good news. That's right. Yep. 
All right, let's look at the, the Old Testament a little bit. We'll talk about the history of sacrifices. Let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 4. As we think about salvation, it's beneficial and necessary even to study the history of sacrifice among God's people. Hebrews 9.22 says that um, without... Hey, says that... Um, Say there is no salvation apart from the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Alright, so let's turn to Genesis 4 and look at this beginning of Old Testament sacrifices. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7. Who can grab that for us? We can. Thanks a lot. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits and soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his, of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, but you must master it. Alright, thank you. And so, why were the brothers here bringing offerings to, to God, to Yahweh? They wanted to please him. What's that? They wanted to please him. Yeah, we can assume that, right? We weren't told that they were commanded to bring an offering. We were just told that they, they brought an offering. So it seemed to be a sort of response, seeking his, his pleasure, seeking to be in favor with him. Notes we can take from this. This is the first time we see an offering. I guess aside from earlier when God had made coverings for Adam and Eve, but um, from man's perspective, this is the first time in Scripture we see an offering. This is taking place after the fall, so we have to realize that. Remember, there was no death before the fall. Secondly, there was no commandment given in Scripture to this point regarding sacrifice. And so we can ascribe what we said they were trying to seek to please God. But we don't see in Scripture a command to bring this offering before him at this point. And third, there's no mention of sin alongside their actions. So it's not as if we're told in Scripture that they were doing this to, to cover for, to atone for their sin. And I think to imply that would be in error. So we don't want to go beyond what is written, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. So it's taking place after the fall, no commandment given in Scripture, no mention of sin in this passage. Kill and Dillich say the offerings were expressive of gratitude to, to God, to whom they owed all that they had were associated also with the desire to secure the divine favor and blessing so that they are to be regarded not merely as think on faith offerings but as supplicatory sacrifices in the wider sense of the word so they are recognizing their position 
the word for offering here is uh, tribute, and it's spoken of as a, a gift from the inferior to the superior. So we see them offering a, a, offering a tribute, realizing their position to God. Why is this going over that again? Okay, there we go. Genesis 8, 18 through 22. Flip for a few pages. <laughs> Noah and his offering after the flood. Genesis 8, 18 through 22. Who's got that for us? Got it. <clears throat> 8, 18 to 22. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, every, every creeping thing and every bird. Everything that moved all the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered bird offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. All right. And so why here was Noah offering her offerings? Thanksgiving? Yeah. <laughs> he had just been rescued from the end of the world, right? This utter destruction which took out 99.99% of humanity. And he and seven other people have been spared by God's grace. And so, yeah, he was offering burnt offerings to the Lord. Um, we see that Noah's first action in this new world, this post-flood world, is to offer, to, to give to God. And this is the first altar which appears in world history. So we don't know what kind of um, system they had in, in Genesis 4 when Cain and Abel were offering and in between uh, chapter 4 up through chapter 8. But this is the first time that we're told that there was an altar that was... Uh, offer upon. Again, we, we don't know. We're in the dark as to whether or not they had used them prior to that. And then thirdly, we see that God accepted this sacrifice. It was pleasing to him. Uh, the smell of the soothing aroma pleased the Lord, and he decided never again to curse the ground. Um, That's why I eat steak, because God likes the smell of burning <laughs> Burning steak. Yeah. Paul says a barbecue, right? He who is God says vegetables only. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Exodus 12. Let's jump forward further to world history. What's going on in Exodus 12? It's a big world event, especially in uh, Judeo-Christian history. <clears throat> Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Who's got in this place? Got in there. Uh, 1 to 13. Okay. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. 
Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family and one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides of the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire. Head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every, every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. NIV translation. All right. We see a couple of uh, interesting things that God established here for the, the Israelite people. What are they? These are foundational things that God has implemented for the first time here in Exodus 12. He's telling them to sacrifice a lamb with the... Um, all right, so we see Passover established, right? Well, <laughs> that's a big thing. Yes, Passover is being established, but he's telling them to sacrifice the lamb and to put the blood on the doorway to protect the Israelites from the angel of death that is going to bring death on the firstborn. Yeah. He's, he's saying this sacrifice, this blood protects you. Yeah, basically. So that, that term Passover has a literal meaning, right? Yep. God would pass over those those houses. He would uh, withhold his judgment and wrath from those individuals because of <coughs> another that was covered. What about verse 2? What do we see established in verse 2 that is new for them? Establishing like their calendar based on... Um, based on the holidays that are for his glory and um, for them to remember who he is. Yeah, so their whole calendar is being shifted and changed. He's saying this today is going to be a, a start for you. We're going to kind of reset things and everything's going to be focused around me delivering you up out of Egypt and covering, passing over you, right? And not holding your sins against you. And we kind of see that same thing in, in our calendar, that everything in the past is pointing forward to Christ, the coming of the Messiah. And we look back to, based on our year, 2021 is based on Christ coming, right? He completely shaped and reshaped the calendar. And the same thing happens here in Exodus 12. 
No, it's just the common era. It has nothing to do with <laughs> Yeah, well, where does that ever come from, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, we see here that this was the first time that God commanded his people to kill an animal for the sake of blood. So before we saw it being done by uh, Abel, right, and then by Noah, but this is the first time that we see it commanded by God that you shall take this animal and you shall kill it and shed its blood. The blood that was, was the means by which Israel escaped death. And then thirdly, propitiation or atonement became a theme that Israel studied year after year. So again, it was to shape their calendar and they were told each year you're to sit down and this, this feast and what I have done for you here at, at Passover. And it was something they were to commemorate and remember each year. Let's jump forward once again, Leviticus 16. Which is a lot more easy to, to teach and understand than Leviticus 15, which has weird stuff in it. Leviticus 16. Let's start with 1 to 5, so we can grab that. Alright, good. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen garments, Shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash, and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one round for a burnt offering. Alright. Um, real quick in verse 5. Uh, how many goats does he take? Two. And how many sin offerings are there? One. One. So two goats are taken for one offering. That's important to notice. The first will satisfy God, and the second uh, will satisfy the, the individual as far as we know. We'll see that as we get farther into the passage. Just want to point it out now that we're there. Two goats, one offering. Um, we see here that Israel needed a high priest. They needed somebody to step in as their intercessor, as their mediator, to be that bridge between man and God. Secondly, we see that there was a holy place in verse 2, and that Aaron was not permitted to enter it. So there was a high priest, there was a holy place, and the high priest had to wear symbolic clothing. He had to put on your clothing, had to uh, take care to bathe before and after. I think that's kind of the yeah. And fourthly, we see that Israel needed not only a burnt offering, but also a sin offering. Israel needed a high priest. There was a holy place. High priest had to wear symbolic clothing, 
cleaning and clothing, and then Israel needed a burnt offering and a sin offering. Let's keep going in Leviticus 16. Somebody grab 6 or 19 after. Are you going to grab that or you got a question, Andy? I, well, I was just going to point something out. Um, it had a note from Leviticus 16. It says the mercy seat, which is on the ark, it says literally propitiatory. Yeah. What does propitiation mean? It means in place of. It's a satisfactory. Satisfaction. Yeah. 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 I was to go to, to work for Jerry tomorrow. Uh, that would be a satisfactory substitute, right? Because I don't know nearly everything that Jerry knows. Uh, I would be able to, to do his job like he's able to do his job. Uh, it requires a, a substitutionary, uh, a satisfactory substitution. And that's what the mercy seat represents. That's what these animals were uh, a shadow of. All right, who's got six through 19? All right, walk around. All right, sorry. <laughs> Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and then another, er, and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it, it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement. <coughs> Cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover and then shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. <clears throat> he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it in his... In, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them, uh, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the up to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the Israelites. All right, it's a lot of blood, right? Yeah. Big bloody mess. What we see from that, we see that. The high priest was made pure by his own sin offering. Did you see that back in 11, I think? That Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make it home for himself. So he needs to take care of his own sin before addressing the sin of the, the people collectively. One of the goats paid for sin 
and the other goat took the symbol. And we saw back in verse 5, there were two goats for one offering. They had two different purposes. One was to satisfy God. One was to take away the sin uh, and satisfy the, the people and to, to act as a, an example of guilt being taken out of the hell. Number seven, the high priest needed to be shielded from God's presence. Again, an uh, example of the holiness of God. Like we started out the, the lesson talking about that when we diminish our understanding of sin, when we diminish the, the penalty that's associated with our sin, what we're really doing is saying, well, God's not all that holy. And God was absolutely holy, so much so that even the, the high priest, the only one who could go into um, this the holy of holies, was unable to be in God's presence. Any thoughts or questions on that so far? Remember, this is all building up and looking to the, the New Testament sacrifice. Um, and this whole lesson really was kind of reverse engineered from one chapter in the New Testament. So be thinking about what that chapter might be and where this is leading. Yes? This might be a dumb question, but um, in verse 5, he takes two goats and one ram. And then in verse 6, it says, he shall offer the bull. So, like, what, what is the bull? Uh, the bull is for the sin offering, and the two male goats are for the sin offering, verse 5. Um, I guess the bull is for himself, it says in verse 6. So, is, so maybe that's... Does bull equal ram? Or am I... Yeah, I was like, where the ram? Oh, look, in verse 3, it says, with the bull for a sin offering, or a ram for a burn offering. Okay, thank you. Um, and I think that's probably the same reference to verse 11, the bull for the sin offering that Aaron has offered for himself. Okay. So he has to offer that for himself first before he's able to so offer the sin offering for the congregation of the people. I didn't see where the bull was introduced, and I was confused. But yes, okay, thank so you. Sorry. 3, 6, and 11. All right. Um, also, again, there was a lot of this. Bloody ordeal. Verses 20 through the end of the chapter. Will somebody read that for us? I got it. That's Andy. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their, all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary, to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. 
But the bowl of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood were brought it, was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuge in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, then afterward he shall come into the camp. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble, humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he did. There's a lot there. All right. Once again, we see that the goat who took away sin was set apart for that specific task. He was uh, chosen by uh, the casting lot for that specific task. And then the men needed to be clean. Uh, not just the, the high priest, but also the man who took out the, the scapegoat. He had to come back and make sure that his clothes and his body were both cleaned and, and bathed with water. We see that Israel was spiritually cleansed once per year. This only took place once annually. And it was retroactive. So it was a, a sin offered for the sins that had taken place in the previous year, not for the next upcoming year. And so they would have maybe a couple of moments where they were okay with God, where they had this um, temporary peace with God. And then, you know, we sin on a daily basis. So after a few moments, uh, they're just collecting that sin over and over again for the next year until the next offering a year from then. Thoughts before we jump to Leviticus 17. All right, we got Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. It says, And any man from the house of Israel, or from aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood of re by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So we see there that uh, the blood is required of the animal by the fact that its life is in the blood. Scientifically speaking, life truly is found in the blood. You can't live without it, right? Uh, what's it called when your blood's drained from you? Is that extinguished? Exsanguination. Exsanguination. Yeah. And that's a thing because life is in the blood, right? I see you guys adjusting glasses and scratching those. <laughs> <laughs> <That's my question. laughs> I don't know why I know that. <laughs> 
God designated it that way to make a point about sacrifice. So in the last chapter, in chapter 16, we notice all the, the blood, right? And how the priest would have to sprinkle blood seven times on this and on that and make atonement for the people and the sanctuary and all this stuff. And uh, there's a point to that. It's all a picture, right? Atonement is life for life. The fact that life is in the blood is vital, it's important. It's the whole point of animal sacrifice and why the blood of Christ is spoken of in, in that way, because it's speaking of the life that he's given up for us. And so to merely say that he, he bled for us, say in the Garden of Gethsemane, to make that atonement or that sacrifice, doesn't have this point in view that life is in the blood. It's speaking of a life being offered in place of a life, not just uh, getting a that word or bleeding. If Jesus were able to offer a satisfactory payment, propitiation, just by offering his blood in and of itself, then he went to the cross needlessly, but he had to give up his life. That's what was being <coughs> exemplified and why life being in the blood is so important. Jews weren't allowed to eat blood, pudding, or rare steak. <laughs> <laughs> right? No blood pudding. Does that sound good? Medium rare good? Yeah, that's okay. But back then, probably not. <laughs> All right. One more Old Testament passage, Psalm 51. Let's go to Psalm 51. Let's see what we have there. In view of uh, sacrifice. Psalm 51, 14 through 17. Can someone grab that, please? Okay, got it. 14 through 17, Psalm 51. <clears throat> Save me from the blood guilt, O God. The God who saved me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. There is something beyond ritualistic sacrifices that God is interested in. He's not just interested in the, the outward expression of our, our obedience. But individually, people are made right with God by being broken before Him in repentance and broken in contrary heart, which is uh, repentance. All right, I told you that all these things were really pointing forward to New Testament texts. Any idea what chapter headed towards yet in the New Testament? Hebrews, what? Give it up. Three. That narrows it down a little bit. Not three. All of them. Do you have a guess, Gary? Seven. Seven's a good guess. Nine. Talking about how Christ is our high priest. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven. Superior. Alright. Well, obviously, all of this points forward to Jesus. It's an aspect of progressive revelation that God is revealing more and more of Himself, of His plan, His desire as time goes on. And we see this specific fulfillment coming to pass in Christ. 
all these are a picture, a shadow, a type of Jesus. And they are commanded by God to be handled in a certain specific way because he wants them to be pointing forward to Jesus. So looking at Abel, we can see from Hebrews 12, 22 and 24, uh, the connection that's made there about Abel. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You guys know of any other references to sprinkled blood in the New Testament? You may have gone over the past week or so. Where's Peter? Where's Peter? Sprinkled blood, right? First uh, Peter 1, 2 says that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours, so foolish man. All right, so Abel and his sacrifice is pointing forward to Jesus, a perfect sacrifice. Um, here we go. We'll feel like that, I guess. Um, I don't know if we can look for Noah. There we go. All right, Noah, in Luke 17, 26 and 27. And that says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man that they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day of the Lord the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. So it's pointing forward to Christ. Christ is um, the specific fulfillment through progressive revolution. Will somebody grab that passage for the passage of 1 Corinthians 5? 1 Corinthians 5, 6, through speaking of Christ as a Passover. I got it. Read it. Yes, please. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Did I get it right? Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um... <clears throat> Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right. <coughs> Hebrews 10 says that the law was only a shadow of the good things to come. It was just a picture of these good things to come. And so all these different aspects of this blood sacrifice uh, are pointing forward to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the ultimate fulfillment, our Passover. And Kippur, the, the day of atonement that we saw in uh, Leviticus 16, where they went in once a year to offer sacrifice. And we see that fulfilled in Christ in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 11 through 28. And we'll go ahead and read that. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, again, reference back to chapter 7, like Jared said, he is our high priest. 
of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goods and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Remember, they were offering sacrifices annually, year after year, after offering a sacrifice for themselves through the blood of these animals. Jesus did it by his own blood once for all having obtained, obtained eternal damage. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified through the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse you your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he, the mediator, just as the priest was in the Old Testament, of a new covenant, a better covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. We saw that in Abraham's covenant, how God sacrificed the animals and God passed through. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, this mosaic covenant, these animals are offered uh, to validate for a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the blood itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. That's what we saw again in Leviticus 16. Moses had to make this covenant uh, effectual by the sprinkling of the blood. 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the co copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as a high priest entered the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the summation of the ages, he has been manifested and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of men, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await it's a great chapter. The more information we have, the more detailed the Christ fulfillment is. Just as the holier we understand God to be, the more it makes sense that we deserve an eternal punishment. So when we have all this information about the Old Testament sacrifice, seeing what Christ did in the New Testament, becomes all that more glorious to us. So why is God's system set up this way? So that we can see what he did more clearly, more fully, and glorify him more. 
by notifying, by, by noticing what it is that he has actually done for us, that propitiation, that satisfactory payment that wasn't available in the Old Testament. What is the main point of all scripture? Christ. Yeah. It's all pointing to Christ, all to glorify Christ. Uh, it's given to us so that we may uh, know him better, right? It's all God-breathed and it's useful for us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. What role does the Old Testament play in our understanding of the New Testament? It is the foundation, the basis of all arguments. Mm. We can't just unhitch the Old Testament, right? It's a vital part of our Bible. Uh, Jesus claimed it, Jesus affirmed it, and we need to do the same. And how can we be forgiven once for all? Shedding of blood, not the blood of goats and wolves, not the shedding of your own blood, which is like an old weird doctrine that some of here taught before, but by the shedding of Christ and his perfect blood, his perfect atoning blood, which is a true propitiation, true satisfaction. Having it imputed to us. Yes. Yep, because we don't have a choice about, well, I guess we don't have a choice about anything, but we have already had uh, Adam's guilt, his nature imputed to us, and uh, Christ's blood must be imputed to us to be reborn and regenerated. Yes, Lord? Is it, is it just me, or did, like, through the New Old Testament, it seemed like it got worse and worse? Or, like, it got uh, more laws and was that he gave, actually. Like, first it started off, they did it in Thanksgiving. Second, you know, take one lamb, the best out, you know, and then it kept getting, you know, now you got to take a bull for yourself and two lambs. And yeah, it's part of the progressive revelation yeah. to have more and more revealed to us so we can have a better understanding of uh, the guilt and this picture being painted and developed by, by God, all pointing to Christ. Remember, it's all a shadow of Christ's fulfillment. He is the, the essence of what it was all pointing to. We have to remember the, the purpose of the law. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3 that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that all flesh may be held accountable and every mouth may be silenced before God. It's uh, a picture for us. It makes us knowledgeable of our sin. It holds us accountable. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, both the Old and New Testament, how it all points to you. You are the, the one central theme of the Bible. Help us to honor you in all that we think, say, and do. Thank you for your sacrifice. I pray that that would be indeed applied to, to everybody who comes in and worships with us this morning, that you would use us to preach your gospel to those who, who don't know you. We know that you came to seek and save the lost. We pray that you give us that same desire in our own hearts. Praise in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.